After all, the storm of the century had just happened, right? Howdy! You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. From the 1840s until 1886, thousands of immigrants from Europe and other parts of the United States came to Texas through the port of Indianola. Located on the shores of Matagorda Bay, the city had grown from a tiny village to a large trading and shipping hub, but in the late 1800s, two devastating hurricanes would erase this thriving port from the map. Today we look at the amazing history and tragic decline of Indianola, the Queen City of the West. Before we get started, when you think of a really fascinating Texas politician, who do you think of? Mine is Paul Ferguson. He was an impeached governor of Texas and still managed to have the guts to run for president. And when I think of a Texas politician, I can't help but think of Lyndon Baines Johnson, good old LBJ, who was bigger than life. And my favorite politician from Texas is the only man to ever beat LBJ in an election, Pappy O'Daniel. But back to Indianola. Why is it so important to the history of the Lone Star State? Texas has always had a need for seaports to supply its early settlements. Texas's long coastline with its miles of barrier islands and natural bays makes several spots ideal for excellent ports. El Capano was founded by the Spanish in 1785 and was the first permanent seaport in Texas. Located off of Aransas Bay, not far from the Spanish missions of Refugio and San Patricio in South Texas, it was established to support those missions as well as the more northern towns of Goliad and San Antonio. Prior to Mexican and Anglo settlements in Texas, uh, pirates and smugglers used the same landing site. Capano wasn't a major port for very long, mostly due to lack of reliable freshwater sources, and was totally abandoned in 1888. Today there are a few remaining ruins, but these are in danger of eroding into the bay. Another significant port was Linville on Matagorda Bay, which is near where LaSalle may have established Fort St. Louis. We have already touched on the history of Linville when we discussed the Great Raid of 1840, when it was looted and burned by a huge force of raiding Comanche. Now, contrary to popular belief, Linville was rebuilt and it continued to operate for a few years after the raid. Most of the residents, though, moved a few miles further down the bay and they founded the town of Lavaca. And after a few years, Linville faded away. Today, the former site of this town has eroded into the Matagorda Bay. Further south, rancher Henry Lawrence Kinney opened a trading post on Live Oak Point in 1839 on the bay formed by the Nueces River. By the mid-1840s, Kinney's ranch was known as Corpus Christi, a small but thriving port that mostly served the ranchers of far south Texas as well as revolutionaries fighting Mexico's central government. This included the short-lived Republic of the Rio Grande. It was also one of the first bases for American troops as they entered Texas after annexation. Corpus Christi was an important port, but was hindered by its lack of deep water capability. In the 1870s and again in the 1920s, the harbor was deepened and it became the most important port in South Texas. Today, Corpus Christi is a flourishing petrochemical center, military base, and tourist destination. But of course, the premier port in Texas in the 1800s was Jean Lafitte's Pirate Haven in Galveston. From 1818 through 1900, Galveston was the most important port on the Gulf Coast. All of the other ports were competing for second place, often thriving because they could do something that Galveston couldn't or wasn't able to do given the transportation constraints of the time. And this leads us to Indianola. In the 1830s, immigrants from all over Europe, primarily from Germany, began traveling to and settling in Texas. Their letters home and to German newspapers describing the favorable climate, available land, and political freedom in the Republic of Texas became very popular. These accounts spurred projects to settle larger groups of Germans in Texas. In 1842, the Mainzer Aldersfahren Abiedrich 
and Rhyme, which is the Society for Protection of German Immigrants in Texas, was formed to recruit colonists and purchase land grants in the Texas Hill Country near San Antonio and Austin. And most of these early settlers were from Hesse, Oldenburg, Westphalia, and Holstein, where overpopulation, especially among the peasant classes, was becoming a chronic problem. The head of the society, Prince Karl of Solms a German noble and soldier, came to Texas in 1844 looking for sites that were appropriate for the settlements. The main location he picked was on the Comal River, south of Austin, and it became known as New Braunfels. The one critical theme that these developing settlements needed, however, was a port of entry and, and for supply. Carl was displeased with the port of Galveston since it was too far away from the proposed colony, and it was also on an island, so they needed further transport for settlers and goods to reach the mainland. Prince Carl found Matagorda Bay to be better suited to the Adelsverein requirements and purchased land near Indian Point, a few miles south of Lavaca. The first few dozen families arrived in late 1844. After that small initial group wintered at Carlshaven, as the port was initially known, the next group of settlers was huge, over 4,000 people. By this point, Carl had been replaced as commissioner by John Musbach, who also showed up in our episode about the Great Raid. And the Verein was bankrupt, but Matagorda Bay would remain the standard port of entry for Germans and other Europeans into Texas. In 1846, the town of Indian Point was founded and became the most important deepwater port in South Texas. Its city limits included the original settlement of Carlshaven. The town changed its name to Indianola in 1849. By 1850, one year later, over 7,000 Germans alone had come into Texas through that port. Many thousand more Germans, Poles, Czechs, Alsatians, French, Irish, Anglos, and Americans would come in and through Indianola, bound for South and West Texas, earning the town the title of the Mother of West Texas. The biggest reason for the port's success was its proximity to San Antonio, which at the time was the largest city in Texas. In 1848, Charles Eckhart, a merchant who had fought in the Texas Revolution and also against the Indians, had contracted a survey to build a road from Indianola to New Braunfels through the town of Yorktown. This was later known as the Old Indianola Trail. The trail shortened the old route by 20 miles and was also known as the Cart Road. As we mentioned in the Dailyville episode, ox carts were used heavily to transport goods in the days before railroads. Immigrants and trade goods would arrive in Indianola and head in from the coast, while other goods would arrive from Mexico and San Antonio to be shipped out to the world. The port was also helped considerably when the Morgan Shipping Line moved its primary Matagorda Bay operation from Lavaca to Indianola in 1850. Lavaca would decline considerably after this. Prior to the Civil War, the Army used Indianola as their primary port since San Antonio was their main base in Texas. Probably the most unusual piece of military equipment to come through the town was two shiploads of camels in 1856, bound for an unsuccessful experiment in West Texas. Indianola was a remarkable oddity for its time. The town was vibrant and prosperous with a population of 1,000 in 1860 and over 2,000 in 1870. The population was dominated by German settlers who stayed in port rather than moving inland, and it was a bilingual community for most of its life. The schools of Indian Point taught English and German until June of 1860. The Civil War diminished the acceptance of German culture, however, since many people equated their heritage with being Unionist sympathizers. The Civil War itself had little direct impact on Indianola. Union forces shelled the port in 1862 and briefly held it, in 1864, but there was very little overall disruption to operations. Immigration restarted almost immediately in 1865, but the real impact of the Civil War came in the cattle industry. The price of beef in the rest of the United States remained high, which radically expanded the cattle drive industry from Texas to New Orleans and later to Kansas. This process was time-consuming and expensive, though, and investors were always looking for a way to speed that up. Early experiments with canning beef in the 1840s and 50s 
had been unsuccessful, but in 1869, Indianola meat processors were able to freeze-dry meat for the first time ever in the world and ship it, and this resulted in a major new industry for the area and generated a population boom. The railroads came to Indianola in 1871 from San Antonio, and combined with the cattle processing and preserving industry, they made Indianola boom. In 1875, Indianola was at the height of its prosperity and had a population of over 5,000 people. But on September 16, 1875, the city was hit by a catastrophic hurricane. A decision 25 years before to shift the town south away from the higher elevations of Indian Point and toward the deepwater inlet of Powderhorn Bayou put the town at sea level and at increased risk to storm surge flooding from the Gulf's yearly hurricanes. The town had weathered hurricanes before, but it had never seen one the strength of the 1875 storm. Winds over 100 miles an hour battered the town's businesses, and the entire town was flooded by the surge. At the time, Indianola was jam-packed with outsiders who were there to see the trial of Bill Taylor for the murder of William Sutton in 1874. This was the climax of the Sutton-Taylor feud. As a result of the storm, Taylor would escape from jail, between 100 and 300 people were killed, and most of the town was destroyed. Only eight buildings in town would escape damage. According to a New York Times article, even the two lighthouses were washed away. You know, the people of Indianola quickly began rebuilding and began to prosper somewhat once again. The rail link from Port Lavaca to Victoria was cut, and Lavaca's decline sped up. By 1885, there was only 76 people left in Lavaca, leaving Indianola the only major port on Matagorda Bay. Unfortunately, though, no lessons were learned from the 75 hurricane. A number of citizens did not return, instead choosing to settle in Victoria and Inquero, but for the most part, the port was rebuilt the way it was before in the same location. No seawall or any other precautions were built to protect the port. After all, the storm of the century had just happened, right? Once again, Indianola was battered by 100-mile-an-hour winds and flooding. This time, however, a major fire broke out as the storm subsided and destroyed almost all of the buildings, whether damaged or undamaged by the hurricane. The devastation was complete, and less than a year later, the town was totally abandoned. Many of the remaining houses were moved to Victoria or Quero. Today, all that remains are a small fishing village, a few ruins that are gradually sliding into the bay, some cemeteries, historical markers, and a magnificent statue of La Salle that was built in 1938. The demise of Indianola would have some interesting and long-lasting consequences on Texas. First of all, Port Lavaca would suddenly find itself the only remaining port on Matagorda Bay. Kind of traded places with Indianola there. Much like with Linville 45 years before, it would rise from the ashes, albeit slowly. Port Lavaca was a bit further inland and on higher ground, weathering both storms fairly well. The railroad link was re-established, and Port Lavaca began a long period of steady growth. Today, there are over 12,000 residents, and Lavaca is an important center for tourism and the Gulf fishing industry. So while Port Lavaca profited from Indianola's disappearance, Galveston also grew and expanded. But it did not learn any lessons from Indianola. In the weeks after the 1886 storm, officials from Galveston visited Indianola's ruin and conducted a study that showed that a seawall should be built in Galveston to protect it from future hurricanes. The state even voted money to pay for it. However, civic leaders and local meteorologist Isaac Klein argued against it. In his book, Isaac Storm, author Eric Larson writes, If Galveston had any lingering anxiety about its failure to erect a seawall, Isaac's 1891 article would have eased them. It was here that he belittled hurricane fears as the artifacts of, quote, 
an absurd delusion. He was especially confident about storm surges. Galveston would escape harm, he argued, because the incoming water would spread first over the vast lowlands behind Galveston on the Texas mainland north of the bay, where the water was even closer at sea level. It would be impossible, he wrote, for any cyclone to create a storm wave which would materially injure the city. On September 8th of 1900, a bigger hurricane than either of the ones to hit Indianola struck Galveston. It leveled the entire town and killed between 8,000 and 12,000 people. Had a sea wall been built, most of those lives would have been saved. And to prove that, they actually did build a seawall in Galveston after that. And in 1915, another storm came through and only about 30 people were killed. There's a lot of damage, but only about 30 people were killed. And so they finally took the lesson. And not only did they build a seawall, but they basically raised the entire populated of the island about five or six feet. And Galveston really, they, you know, 1900 was the kind of the end of Galveston as the major port in Texas because of, after that they built the Houston Ship Channel. But Galveston is still a more important city, big on tourism. They've had several hurricanes that have severely damaged the island, most recently the Ike Hurricane, but it continues to rebuild and largely because of the lesson that finally was learned from the Indianola Hurricane and the 1900 Galveston Hurricane. I think that's really kind of the lesson is that Indianola gives to the state is, is, is a cautionary tale. And I know Scott probably feels this way. Living for several years on the Texas coast, as I did in my childhood, living under the threat of hurricanes is something that we just, we take for granted. I mean, it's something that's printed on every grocery bag you get is a little hurricane tracker map and you would cut it out and you would put it on your refrigerator with magnets and then the weatherman would tell you the coordinates and you'd look it up and you'd mark where the hurricanes were and you'd track them in. Right near Corpus Christi Bay was where we lived, not far from Aransas Pass and Matagorda Bay. You know, my personal connection to Indianola is that that's where a lot of my original family from Poland came through in the 1850s, and that was the the major landing port. I mean, you have the Germans, you have the Poles, you have the Czechs, and so much of that Eastern European heritage is based, you know, in, on, and around what happened in Indianola. It's a very culturally significant area where today there's almost nothing there that you can see. And along those same lines, you know, I've got German heritage. Uh, my wife's got Czech heritage. I don't know how much of her family came through Indianola. I'm pretty sure none of mine did. But the German culture in Texas, I do have a connection to, you know, that all came through the same place. I've always looked at Indianola sort of the Ellis Island of Texas. It really is, especially in the 1800s, it's, it's kind of the funnel through which European culture sort of came in to Texas in a lot of ways. I'm sure a lot of people came in through Galveston, but Indianola really has that that mark. And, you know, it's kind of sad that there's no, there's very, there's a lot of historical markers out there, but there's no town, there's no heritage to it. The good thing is, is on the web, there's a lot of information for genealogy people. If you want to trace your family, if you came through German heritage, there's a lot of information about who came in through Indianola during the 1800s. So I encourage you to seek that out. It's a great story about an interesting place that we've mentioned several times on many of our other podcasts, and I'm sure Indianola will keep popping up. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. Yeah.